we're laying the foundation of, of one of the most uh, important parts that many people miss, and that is uh, the, the uh, pervasive prophetic principle. Here's your first blanks. The key to understanding the future of the world is understanding the future of Israel, a key foundation. And then we established a corollary to the principle. You should be good at these by now. This is week eight on uh, national Israel and how it fits in. Um, the key to understanding the future of Israel is understanding the Old Testament deliverers of Israel. So we looked at Joseph and Gideon, and last week we looked at 11 parallels between the story of David and Goliath and the details of Christ's return. And so tonight we're going to look at some other parts of David's story that have profound prophetic meaning. So let's jump right in. So we're going to dive right in right where we left off last week. Here is prophetic, uh, uh, excuse me, parallel number 12. Both David, here's your blanks, both David and Jesus were appointed to be king of the Jews at a very young age. And uh, you're in 1 Samuel 16, not 17, 1 Samuel 16. Look with me at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? So the setup is Samuel has, has heard from the Lord, hey, Jesse's, one of Jesse's sons is going to be king, is going to be my king, thus says the Lord. And so it would have never crossed Jesse's mind that the little tiny boy out with the sheep, uh, not following him, but him following the sheep, literally, uh, as we read last week. Um, uh, so he's gone through the oldest seven, and, and uh, Samuel says, uh, we need another one. Are, there, are these all your children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, almost as if he's embarrassed, notice, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him. Now, he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So, David was very young when he was uh, announced as, that he would be the king of Israel. And what about Jesus? In your notes, I've been doing this for uh, efficiency for us. Notice from Matthew chapter 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So both David and Jesus were announced as Israel's next king at a really young age. And next, let's look closely at what happened when Saul died and David, having been anointed by Samuel, now years later, of course, remember the anointing is when he's a little boy. Now Saul has di died at the uh, end of his uh, 40 years. Um, and so David was supposed to ascend to the throne of Israel. And this gives us parallel, parallel number 13. We pick up the story with the Philistines fighting Israel at Mount Gilboa. And look with me, we're still in 1 Samuel, but look now with me at 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31, look at verse 3. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. So King Saul is dead, and David is now supposed to take the kingship of Israel. And remember that all the way back in chapter 16 was the anointing by Samuel 
of David. So it's really clear who the next king is supposed to be. But look what actually happens. Go a couple of chapters to the right. Now in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, look at verse 5 with me. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul. They buried him and took care of him. To Saul your Lord and have buried him. Verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Very interesting. Watch this. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Verse 9, and he, and he made him king over Gilead, over Asher, the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. So perhaps you didn't know, in Bible trivia, if you ask the question, who is the second king of Israel, the answer isn't David. The answer actually is Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And when Saul died, David was supposed to be king over Israel. But, but when David was presented to Israel the first time, they didn't want him. They wanted Ishbosheth. So here's parallel number 13. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Just as Israel rejected David at his first coming, they rejected Jesus at his first coming. And you know that well. Parallel number 14, Saul represented an old covenant, but David had received the promise of a new covenant, what we know now as the Davidic covenant. But the nation of Israel rejected the covenant with David. They were blind to the fact that God was sending them a new way, a new covenant. They loved the old way and rejected the new. And this was exactly the story of what happened when Jesus came to Israel. Look from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what they saw fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, notice that, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever you, a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When Israel's Messiah brought the new covenant to them, just like with David, bringing a new covenant, Saul was the old covenant, the Davidic covenant was new, and they said, no, we don't want it. In the very same way, the new covenant, capital N, capital C, um, Israel was blinded when Christ brought the new covenant. So here's parallel number 14. Here's your blanks. Just as Israel rejected the new covenant of David, they rejected the new covenant of the son of David. Notice the parallels back and forth, really striking. Parallel number 15. Here's your blanks. Just as Israel wanted, to, uh, wanted a different king than David, they wanted a different king than Jesus. In David's time, God had already chosen and anointed him king over Israel, as we've seen, but they wanted somebody different. So they, they chose Ishbosheth. And do you know what the name Ishbosheth means in Hebrew? This is very striking. Ishbosheth in Hebrew means literally man of shame. That's right. Ishbosheth 
man of shame. So here's Israel's incredible blindness. Write it in. They preferred the man of shame to the man of God. They preferred the man of shame to the man of God. And this is a perfect prophecy of the future when God sent the king of kings to Israel. They rejected him and chose another king. Look at the text from John where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. It's in your notes. Look from John 19. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone makes, who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, think of that. These are speaking for all the nation of Israel. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Parallel number 16 here we'll drill down a bit deeper into the issue of all the tribes of Israel except Judah rejecting David's kingship at his first appearance. You're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up? Remember Saul, two chapters before, died in battle. Okay, So it's, it's David's inquiring of the Lord, which is what a good king is supposed to do. Shall I go up? to the cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So that's an important place in the tribal land of Judah. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with their household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. So here's parallel number 16. Here's your blanks. Only a small remnant, only a small remnant of Israel accepted David when he first appeared as their king. And so it was with Christ that only a small remnant of Israel recognized him as their Messiah and king at his first appearance. Look here in Luke chapter 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And, his, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, meaning Meshiach, Messiah, right? Looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see the death, see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Holy Spirit has promised him he's going to be alive to see the coming of the long-awaited, amazing Messiah of God. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, this is circumcision, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." Simeon knew this is Messiah, the one who will save Israel. So notice, the picture of David only being accepted by the tribe of Judah is a prophetic picture of what would happen to Messiah. 
Most of Israel opposed Jesus, and only a remnant accepted him. And don't miss this. Here's your blank. An important Old Testament linkage. In Luke 2, who represented those who would accept the Messiah? Isn't this amazing? Simeon. Simeon. And do you remember from Joseph and his story with his brothers what this Hebrew name means? Simeon means to listen. It means to hear. It means hearing. It means spiritual insight. It's a parallel of being able to see with open eyes spiritually. So Simeon represented the remnant of Israel with ears to hear and eyes to see. Remarkable when you see that linkage 2,000 years before in the Joseph story. And what does the text say about Simeon? And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So look at this and let this sink in. This convicts me. Simeon lived his life listening to the Lord. Simeon lived his life listening to the Lord. Out of all of the Israel that was there, he was waiting. He knew when that baby boy, imagine how many baby boys had been circumcised, but he knew because Simeon lived his life listening to the Lord. So not everyone missed David and not everyone missed Jesus, but let's not run quickly past the personal application here for us. Simeon should be a lesson to all of us. If we're not listening, if we're not watching, if we're not pursuing God, we can miss Jesus just like most of Israel missed Jesus. I don't mean knowing the verbiage, knowing how to show up to church. I mean the real Jesus in relationship, knowing that he's your savior and that it's fine for you to die now because you know the salvation has come. So tonight, let me just ask you a simple question. Are you listening? So David reigned as king only over Judah for seven and a half years. But then he appeared before Israel again. Isn't this remarkable? First coming of Joseph, second coming of Joseph. Here we see first coming of David, second coming of David. And now we come to parallel number 17. We're in 2 Samuel still. Just turn over a few chapters to the right in chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Look at this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Remember in Hebron, a key part in Judah where he had been reigning as king only over Judah for seven and a half years as Ishbosheth was the king in Israel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and he said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. So here's parallel number 17, write it in. At his second appearance before Israel, got it? At his second appearance before Israel, the Jews recognized their error and proclaimed David as their king and the entire nation followed him. 
And so it will be at the second coming of Christ that all Israel will recognize their king and accept his new covenant and the whole nation will be saved. If you watch Thursology number 38, you'll be familiar with this passage from Romans 11. I would encourage you to go there. It's termed something like, all Israel will be saved. You know, how amazing is that? Or something like that. Number 38. But look at Romans chapter 11. Paul talking about what will happen uh, as the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, meaning at the end of the tribulations. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant. Notice the covenant language all over David and all over Jesus and all over Israel. My, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in the very same way that most of Israel has rejected their Messiah throughout all of the history since Pentecost, the, the uh, cross, the resurrection, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and notice what will happen at the very end, just like happened with David, all Israel, the text says, came and they proclaimed David their king and anointed him and said, you shall be over us. So that will also happen with Jesus at the very end. Parallel number 18, look at the next verse. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. And David was 30 years old when he became king. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but look at this, parallel number 18, write it in. David was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And guess what? Look at what Luke says about Jesus. From Luke chapter 3, it's in your notes. Look, when he became his, began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. So Jesus began his public ministry to Israel at the exact same age that David did. Parallel number 19. This evening the text has told us about the pretender, the pretender who Israel declared king when David should have taken the throne. His name was Ishbosheth. So now let's look again at what happened when Jesus was presented as the king of Israel. Look back at chapter 19 of John. We've seen some of this tonight, but not all of it. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set him down at the judgment seat. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Then the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So here's parallel number 19. Here's your blanks. Write them in. Ishbosheth was a prophetic picture of Caesar. C-A-E-S-A-R, kind of hard to spell. Ishbosheth was a prophetic picture of Caesar who was a great pretender, right? A pretender to the throne. He wasn't God's king. David was. He was a pretender presuming to replace Israel's true king. Let me say that again. Ishbosheth was a prophetic picture of Caesar who was a great pretender presuming to replace Israel's true king king. So Israel rejected David at his first coming and declared Ishbosheth the man of shame to be their king. And in the same way, they rejected Jesus at his first coming and proclaimed Caesar, the embodiment 
of shame and evil to be their king. But the prophetic meaning doesn't end here. Caesar was way bigger than just this. He was also a type. He was a foreshadowing of the kind of leaders that humanity would raise up through all of history. Humans have this long pattern. Oh my, just look around. Humans have this long pattern of putting maniacs in power. In retrospect, the last people that you would want to be in power. But that's who gets raised up by humanity. Let's look a bit more closely at how this played out in the history of Israel. This tendency to raise up the man of shame instead of the righteous one. Think about this. What kind of king was Caesar? Listen, ringing in our ears was, we have no king but Caesar. Who was that? That was the leaders of Israel making that statement. So look at, look at this. <laughs> was Caesar good to the Jews? On the contrary, in fact, he was simply the appearance of the kind of emperors that Egyptian pharaohs had been. And just as the pharaohs were worshipped as gods, despite their despotic evil, so the Caesars came to be worshipped as gods by the Romans. So in John 19, we see Israel rejecting the gracious and loving Lamb of God who had come to literally die for them, and clinging to the most evil man on the face of the earth was their decision. Can you imagine the Jews, who had been oppressed and slaughtered by the Caesars, actually declaring these words, We have no king but Caesar? Imagine how much they hated Jesus if they could declare unanimously their allegiance to the one who had slaughtered their forefathers and mothers. Wow. You see how much they didn't want their Savior. But this wasn't new for Israel. Let's look back to the days of the mighty pharaohs when Moses had led them out of slavery, and God was about to deliver them by a mighty miracle at the Red Sea. Look at this. It's in your notes from Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. When they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt, as if Egypt was this really cushy place, right? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So here was the pattern. This is really important. I'll read it twice because it's a long sentence with with three uh, blanks, but look at this, the pattern. Israel rejected their deliverer Moses and accepted the wicked Pharaoh. They rejected their deliverer David and accepted the man of shame, Ishbosheth. And ultimately, they rejected their great deliverer, Jesus, and accepted the wicked and murderous Caesar. So let me just read it through now. Israel rejected their, their deliverer Moses and accepted the wicked Pharaoh. They rejected their deliverer David and accepted the man of shame, Ishbosheth. And ultimately, they rejected their great deliverer, Jesus, and accepted the wicked and murderous Caesar. So this concept leads to our application. Application number one, write it in. The pattern of Caesar 
is perfectly descriptive of the world's history and the world's future. You're going to see how much eschatology, in times teaching there is now in the applications. So it turns out that the pattern of people choosing evil leaders embodied by the Caesars wasn't just a problem in Israel. In fact, the Caesars were a prophetic picture of the evil leaders that people would raise up for themselves throughout the ages as humanity has sped toward the final day of history. So let's look at what a remarkable prophetic foreshadowing the Caesars are. Ready? Number one, here's your blank. I think you'll find this fascinating. The Caesars of Russia. These are not all the examples. I'm just giving you some examples and you'll be quite struck, I think. Number one, the Caesars of Russia. The greedy, wicked czars ruled Russia with blood on their hands for centuries. And the culmination of these wicked leaders, despite the revolution that was supposed to put everything right, were the murderous rulers of the Soviet Union that oversaw the annihilation of millions of Jews, Christians, and political outcasts during the 20th century. And who were these czars like? The leader that Israel accepted instead of Jesus, Caesar. So Caesar was a prophetic type of the czars. In fact, guess what you find when you do the translation? Here's your blank, write it in. The root words for Caesar in Latin and Greek are the equivalent to czar, C-Z-A-R, are the equivalent to czar in Russian. So guess what? The Russian czars and the Soviet czars, although they rejected that terminology because they were supposed to be the great saviors, guess what they were? They were just Caesar all over again. And as the Caesars and the czars destroyed the Jews in the past, guess what the plan in the last ruler of Russia will be, the last czar of Russia will be. We don't have the time to develop the details of Ezekiel's prophecy about Rosh. For now, I simply want to point out that many biblical scholars believe that Rosh, within the text, we'll read it, corresponds to modern-day Russia. Ezekiel also identifies the leader of Rosh and names him Gog, who is actually different than the Antichrist. So turn with me to Ezekiel. So you're on the left side of the Old Testament. Turn past the Psalms uh, and a couple more uh, books should get to the major prophets. And once you make it into the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, right before Daniel. And look with me in Ezekiel chapter 38, starting with verse 1. Ezekiel 38, verse 1. And you're going to see this. Uh, God, uh, you're going to hear the words Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Rosh. Here, most scholars believe is actually Russia and Gog, their leader. Uh, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Verse 7, next paragraph. Be prepared and prepare yourself. God's still speaking to Gog, this leader of Rosh. Be prepared and prepare yourself you and all of your companies that are assembled about you, and be on guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned in the, notice, in the latter years, so at the end of time, nearing the day of the Lord, in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from the many nations to the mountains of Israel, 
which will have had continual waste, but its people were brought out of the nations and were living secret, securely, all of them. So notice the timing. This is after the fig tree blooms, what we learned last week. This is after Israel comes back into the land and is now a nation again. And this is Gog <coughs> of the land of Magog and Rosh is going to come against them after they have come back into their own land. Verse 9, and you will go up and you will come like a storm and you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So the last czar from Rosh will be an end to end on uh, destroying Israel as all of the other Caesars have been. This long line of Caesars, now czars, if you will, trying to wipe out God's people. Number two, here's your blank, the Caesar of Germany. The Caesar of Germany. What German leader was the embodiment of the wicked Caesars of old? Well, Hitler, of course, everybody knows that. And even much of the official church in Germany followed him and looked away as he murdered 6.2 million Jews. And guess what happens when you look at the translation of Hitler's official title? Ready? Here's your blank. The German equivalent for the root words for Caesar in Latin and Greek is, you ready for this? Kaiser. K-A-I-S-E-R. The Kaiser Hitler, guess what? Just one more Caesar. So think about this. Humanity has always chosen evil leaders over good ones. The new age is wrong. We aren't headed toward a utopia of peace and tolerance and benevolence and hope. Just look at the pharaohs and the Caesars and the czars and the Kaiser. They were all the same. So as we look at the entire history of the world, it loudly declares that humanity's real problem is not what human leaders can take care of because they all get addicted to power. Guess what humanity's problem is? Sin. Our fundamental problem is an economic, social, psychological, political, sociological, or environmental. These are huge problems. But all of these problems are actually symptoms of our real problem. Our real problem, humanity loves evil. And that's why we raise up leaders like Caesars and reject leaders like David and Jesus. And this leads us to the last great Caesar. Write it in, number three. The last great Caesar now we're ready to use tonight's biblical and historical lessons to learn about the future. You see, Hitler, the Kaiser, isn't going to be the last story of the Caesars. It's the last Caesar we're going to cover. The Kaiser is the last Caesar we're going to cover tonight. But it will not be the last Caesar in the future. So let's look at where all this is headed. What, a, what great civilization was ruled by the Caesars? Well, you know that for sure. Rome. And what happened to Rome? Well, it turns out the last Roman emperor reigned in the 16th century. You know, you may know that the power of Rome had long begun to dissipate, but you could still trace the Caesars for nearly 2,000 years of world history. But even though it went away, Rome will return. Go back to the 
the World History, the World Civilization series we did from Nebuchadnezzar's statue, if you want to. This is the iron mixed with clay. So the iron is the old, the iron uh, uh, th thighs and, and uh, calves are, are the old Rome, but it will be renewed. Uh, and we'll even see the allusion to the, the tin aspects of that uh, uh, even tonight from another perspective. Um, so let me lay the groundwork for a huge biblical prophetic finding. First, let's identify what most Western civilizations today believe is the answer to the world's problems. Ready? Global cooperation and world government. Global cooperation and world or worldwide government. And guess who will ultimately be raised up as the world leader at the culmination of this great movement? This world will be declared the most evil man in history as humanity's ultimate Messiah. This is what we uh, learn from the prophetic vision in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. So you're in Ezekiel, just turn to the right one book, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and look with me at verse 2. Daniel 7, 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And this parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream, okay? So we're going to jump to the fourth, to Rome and renewed Rome. Look with me in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Interesting. Look at verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. By the way, this is the first three and a half years, where it looks like He's a big, the Antichrist is a big peacemaker, and only at the abomination does it be clear, become clear. So that's the little horn part, right? Came up among them, and the first three and a half horns, excuse me, the, the three of the first horns were pulled out of the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. To interpret this vision, it helps to understand a biblical concept that's called near-far prophecy, near hyphen, far, prophecy. This passage prophesies both ancient Rome, so that's the near prophecy, and renewed Rome, that's the far prophecy, and that's where you get the ten heads that are the ten world regions that Antichrist will rule over, and now you can see it perfectly matching the evil leader in Revelation chapter 13. Look with me. Now the abomination of desolation has happened, and now the Antichrist, the beast, is revealed. Look at this. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea with, look at this, ten horns and seven heads. Guess what? Three get toasted off. That's the three, and seven are ten. Having ten horns and seven heads, and on those horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. The dragon, remember, being Satan, the beast being Antichrist. And I saw one of his heads as if it was, had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. This is the fake Messiah having a fake death and a fake resurrection. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast." They worshipped the dragon because he gave the authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, 
who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. So this evil man, the beast, the Antichrist, will rule the world and nearly everyone on earth will follow after him. Now remember that when Pilate offered Jesus to Israel as their king, instead they said, we have no king but Caesar. So let's see how Israel will respond to the Antichrist. Let's admit you to think that Israel would have learned, right, when this last gigantic one who's going to try to wipe all of them out comes and pretends to be their Messiah. Let's look at Daniel's prophecy of the 70th seven. Look over at chapter 9. You'll be familiar with this. If you're not, you need to go back uh, and look at the series. It's like number 3, 4, and 5, uh, where we unpack this from Daniel chapter 9. But we're just now going to look at Daniel's 70th seven, meaning the last seven years of history. We know it as the tribulation. And look what happens at the beginning of the tribulation, the 70th seven. And he will make a firm covenant. He, the one who will bring the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, we know. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven, but in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in that, you have the whole start to finish. He makes a covenant, a peace treaty. At the midpoint, he breaks it, and at the end, he's destroyed by what we know, of course, is the return of Christ. So Israel will choose to join in a covenant with the last great Roman leader. Can you believe it? It's, we have no king but Caesar all over again. So here's the key concept. Write it in. Israel will join in a covenant with the last great Caesar. They'll willingly sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist, and they'll think that he's their Messiah. But this shouldn't surprise anyone. Israel chose Pharaoh over Moses, Ishbosheth over David, and Caesar over Jesus. And all of these are pictures of key concept number two. Here's your blanks. Write it in. During the tribulation, most of the Jews and most of the world will choose the false Christ. Notice the small c. Will choose the false Christ over the real Christ. But here is the great news. There'll be more great news, but this is the great news. Pharaoh, Ishbosheth, Caesar, and the Tsars, and the Kaiser were very powerful, but they didn't win, and they're all gone. And Antichrist will be more powerful than all of these evil leaders of history put together, but just like his evil predecessors, Antichrist won't win. Just as David defeated the giant, so will Jesus defeat the greatest giant. Application number two, here's your blank. The whole word of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole word of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But sometimes you have to dig deeply to see it. I'm hoping that the last five weeks studying Joseph and Gideon and David has shown you the universal principle that everything, everything, listen church, everything in the scripture ultimately points to Jesus. And when I'm reading a section of the word where I can't see that connection yet, it simply means 
that I haven't dug deeply enough. So I'd like to show you something from David's life that illustrates this in a spectacular way. And to do this, we'll look at the last three great victories that when history is all over, this will be the last three great victories of Israel. Victory number one, listen to the text from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. You'll be familiar because of last week from this, the fig tree generation passage. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, Israel. When its branches already have become tender and put forth its leaves and you know, you know summer is near, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize he, Jesus, is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And when did the fig tree blossom? You know well, 1948. Israel, against all odds, miraculously received back their land and became a nation again after two and a half thousand years of being scattered all over the earth. But a lot of people have forgotten an important historical fact. Let me show you. I'll put it up here. Victory number one. Who was it? I think I've got it, uh, I've got it in your text here. Look at this. Uh, what nation did Israel receive the promised land back from? Here's your blank. The answer is, this might surprise some of you if you don't remember your, uh, your history, Great Britain. Great Britain. That's right. Victory number one. They got the promised land back from Great Britain. And Great Britain, as all, just like America, is the eagle, is our symbol. Uh, Great Britain has a symbol, and that symbol is, if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace, you'll see them all around the palace. Here's your next blank. Their symbol is the lion. So that's your national fact. Victory number two. During the tribulation, there will be a huge battle against Israel, and most scholars have, uh, have come to believe that this battle happens before Armageddon. And if you go through the scripture, this battle actually, the details of the battle look very, very different than the, valley, the battle in the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, it's called the Battle of Magog, and we already looked briefly at it tonight, but let's return to Ezekiel Chapter 38, Daniel, here in Daniel, just turn to the left one book, Ezekiel's right before Daniel, Ezekiel chapter 38, and let's look here at Ezekiel 38 again, starting with verse 1. You saw these verses before, but to reset, look at this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And notice, jump down several paragraphs to verse 14. Prophecy going on against Gog of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal here. Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? And you will come from your place out of the remotest part of the north, very key, out of the north, and you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army, and you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about that in the last days I will bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me, and I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes. 
O Gog. Now look at uh, chapter 39, the first few verses. Chapter 39. And you, O son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I shall turn you around and drive you on, take you up from the remotest part of the north, again, notice the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel, and I shall strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You shall fall on the mountain of Israel, you and all your troops. So, who is this great power from the north? You can see already all over this why many scholars, probably most, believe that this is, this is who we've talked about. You, you, know that, uh, you may not know this. Did you know that, if you can look on the globe, did you know that Moscow is literally due north of Israel? If you follow the line, it is literally due north of Israel. So, there's strong biblical and historical evidence that Magog and Rosh is, you ready? Victory. We just heard the victory that God gives through uh, the prophesying of Ezekiel in chapter 39. Um, victory number two is Russia. Victory number two is Russia, because this precedes Armageddon, the war against Antichrist. Don't confuse Gog with Antichrist, the beast in Revelation. And what is the symbol? Here's a national fact. What is the symbol of Russia? The bear. The bear. Okay, and victory number three. At the end of time, now we are to Armageddon. At the end of time, one last great foe will come against Israel. And look at it from Revelation chapter 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So this is the unholy trinity, right? Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. These three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So this is it. The great day of God, the Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Mageddon, which we, of course, in English now translate Armageddon. This is the big one. So, who's the last great enemy that they have a victory over? Antichrist. Antichrist. Victory number one, Great Britain. Victory number two, Russia. Victory number three, over the great world leader, the Antichrist. And now, having identified the last three great victories that Israel deli Israel's deliverer brings about for the nation, let's return to the story of David and Goliath. And let's see what a perfect prophetic picture that David provides for the return of Christ. Turn back with me to first, all the way back to 1 Samuel. It's about 20% of the way in your Bible. The Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles. Um, you ought to be able to find it fairly easily now. Look with me at chapter 17 of Samuel, verse 26. Chapter 17, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him and said, he's now come to the, to the, uh, the uh, Goliath standoff, the Philistine standoff, where everyone's horrified of the great giant. Look at this. David spoke to the men who were standing by him and said, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies 
of the living God. Now look at verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go out and fight against this Philistine. And then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took it Uh, took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued him from his mouth. And then he rose up against me. I seized him by the the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this great Philistine, the giant. So watch this. Think about the last three great victories that Christ wins for his people Israel at the end of history. The lion, the bear, and the giant. Britain, Russia, and the Antichrist. So look at application number two again. Look what you wrote in. The whole word of God is the revelation of Jesus. But sometimes you have to dig deeply to see it. Guess what? The lion, the bear, and the giant were not mostly about the lion, the bear, and the giant. They're mostly about Jesus saving Israel and everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord at the end of history when the Antichrist intends to destroy everyone who is good. So I don't know about you, but I've known that David defeated the lion and the bear and the giant since I was a little tiny child. And it's a great story of faith and a great story of God's faithfulness. But it remains only a story about King David. And if it does remain only that, that he was a boy and he took out these great enemies we miss the incredible revelation of Jesus that the event points to. So let me challenge you. No matter where you are, what part of the word you're reading or studying, wherever you're doing your devotions now, even if it's about a lion or a bear or a giant, always, always, always be looking in the written word for the incarnate word. Because the whole word of God reveals Jesus always. Don't be lazy in your study of the scripture to only understand the meaning on the surface. Always be looking for the depths of the truth that revealed the word and always be looking for Jesus. And now we're ready for application number three. Application number three. Here's your blanks. God has earned our trust in him and in his word through the impossible perfection of of prophecy. God has earned our trust in him and in his word through the impossible perfection of prophecy. So let's take a step back and let this settle in. You may have never seen this before. The lion, the bear, and the giant. Britain, Russia, and Antichrist. Can you believe this? You can't make this up. The word of God, when we look for it and really let it soak in, gives us everything we need to have a bold faith. 
The Word stands up to every challenge. It stands up to every question. It stands firm no matter what attacks are undertaken to undermine the validity of the Word. So this evening, don't miss this. We live in a day where many in the church are questioning the inerrancy of God's Word. But think back 3,000 years with me. Let this, just track with this. Little David is in the battle of his life. He's not thinking about anything except this huge imposing giant that's been disrespecting his God. He doesn't have a clue about eschatology or the end of time or the consummation of the ages or the second coming of Christ. In fact, he doesn't even know anything about Christ. In fact, it's 1000 BC. And that means that the Old Testament books that will start laying the foundation for understanding the revelation of Christ haven't even been written yet. David lived centuries before the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah will be written so they could start unpacking what the great day of the Lord could look like. And in the midst of all of this, the God of the ages has such perfect control of history that God is able to have this small boy facing sure death to prophesy in perfect detail the symbols of the battles that will happen at the end of the ages. Think of that. Why did the lion come to David? <laughs> Great Britain. And why did the bear come to David? Russia. And why did Goliath come to David? The Antichrist. You just can't. The mathematics against being able to pull this off are impossible. So God's word is amazing. And this gives us a key concept. Write it in. Here's your last blanks. Those who question the inerrancy of the word are either ignorant of its content or ignoring what they know to be true. These, those who question the inerrancy of the word of God are either ignorant of its content, they just don't know, they haven't done study like this, or they're ignoring what they know to be true. They know it's true, but they don't want it to be. And I want you to notice something. The book that recorded the story of David and Goliath, that's the Bible. This book that's recorded the story of David and Goliath isn't just a collection of ancient poems and discourses and fables and myths. It's not simply another recording of religious writings. It is, my friend, the perfect word of God. It's historically accurate and absolutely sufficient to reveal the creator. It's perfect in its ability to lead us to salvation. And it has an amazing truth about the future of the world that can't be manufactured. It's perfect and in it is life and hope. How much time are you spending in the perfect word of God? This evening, we studied a story about a small Hebrew boy that found himself in an impossible situation. The God of the universe not only resolved his immediate problem, but in the midst of coming to David's rescue, God affirmed his complete control over all of history. He used this little boy to show what will happen at the end of time. That means he's got complete control. So let me ask you something. If Jehovah God can look over 3,000 years into the future and foretell 
in exact detail the great nations of the world and what they will be doing to the, at the end of time. Do you think our God is adequate to take care of your problems and mine? Our God is the God of the impossible. And he's the God who delivers whoever will take their trust and place it in him. He's the God who will take this battered world that will have come to the brink of destroying itself. We can even see how the world is destroying itself now. And we're going to see him perfectly restore it and make it into a new heaven and a new earth. So I leave you with a simple set of questions tonight. Do you trust the one who controls the future of the world to take care of your future? Pause for a moment. Let that sink in. What are you worried about right now? God has controlled and will control everything, the whole world, all of the powers. So can you trust him to take care of your future? And have you placed every single aspect of your life, every decision, every plan, every relationship, every choice completely in his hands? If you haven't, tonight's revelation of his perfect word leaves you with no excuses. It's time right now, in this moment, to offer your life to him, every detail. It's time to surrender completely to God's will. So, will you do that right now?